The World Health Organization ranks depression as the fourth leading cause of disability worldwide. In the Americas, it is the leading cause of disability. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Dan Diamond. Dr. Diamond is an experienced family physician and an award-winning educator. He is a family physician in private practice in Silverdale, Washington, where he also serves as clinical assistant professor for the University of Washington's School of Medicine. Welcome. Thanks, Leslie. So, Dan, when it comes to function, how bad of a problem is depression? It really depends on how you look at it. If we think about just the impact on the individual person, that's one thing. But if you back up and think about the elements in that person's life and who they touch, it becomes a much more significant problem. For example, if you look at the impact on work productivity, that's a very costly problem. But consider also the impact on marriage or the impact even on children. We know that children of parents that are depressed are more likely to get depressed. Some of that may be genetically, but we also know that they're more likely to get depressed during that time frame when a parent is depressed. So what is the impact here in the United States? I'd love to throw this out to you as a question and have the, everybody on their XM radios push the button so they could all guess on how much money we, we lose in the United States to the diagnosis of depression every year because it's an astronomical amount. It's $83.1 billion. Billion with a B? Yeah, billion with a B. That's a tremendous amount of money. Where does that compare with other illnesses? It depends on which country you're looking at. We're spending $83.1 billion now in the United States. If you look at the United States, we are, it's one of the top diagnoses that we're having problems with. It's up there with heart disease, lung disease. It's a very, very significant problem that we have, although it doesn't get a lot of media attention even to this day. You would think that it would the amount of, of money that we're losing. So how does that $83 billion, how does that break down? I would think that the, the most important thing that people need to understand about this is you break that $83 billion down, $51.5 billion of that is lost work productivity. And it's interesting that the majority of that is not because of absenteeism, but it's presenteeism. Presenteeism is where people show up to work, they just don't function as well as they could if they were healthy. So $51.5 billion. But when was the last time that I had a patient in my practice that came in for a follow-up on depression? And I said, well, how are things going at work? How's your depression impacting you at work? And then do I remember longitudinally to, to follow up and ask about that? You know, when you first started out, you said you were struggling at work with this depression. Have we got you to the point now where you're back on track at work and, and doing well, or are you still kind of struggling? How's your short-term memory? How's your working memory? How's your vigilance? Are you staying on task and doing the job that you need to do at work? That's a whole different thing than saying, are you sad? Are you crying? Are you suicidal? Those are all important questions, but we need to move beyond that to, are you being productive at work again? So how else can this impact what we do in our offices every day? One of the things I'm doing is I'm taking a much broader approach to the whole diagnosis of depression. I know it's more than a mood disorder. There's a whole component of it that's physical symptoms, and that's important to address because that predicts who's going to be at risk for relapse and who's going to be difficult to treat. But then I've got to really bring this other part of the, of the whole equation in is function. 
And one of the things that is sometimes done is when you're interviewing a patient, they come in for their first office visit when you're diagnosing them with depression. And I learned this trick from Stephen Stoll. Ask them, what three things did you like to do before you got depressed? And then I write those down in the chart, and when they come back in, I'll ask them about those things. And they think that I am so smart and I care about them and I'm, and I'm tuned into their latest hobbies and all that. Well, I have it written down in the chart. And they're amazed that I can remember it, but it's written down right in front of me because those are very concrete treatment goals for me to get the patient back to the point where they're functioning like they used to. Well, it's very reasonable to add in work productivity as one of those things. Yeah, I think we took the same class from Dr. Stahl. I do the same thing. And I remember one of my patients who said when he's feeling well, he likes to sing. And so uh, every time he'd come in after that, I'd ask him if he's singing and no, no, no. And then one day he came into my office and belted out a song. So it was pretty obvious he was feeling better. And he wasn't hypomanic, I have to add that. But you bring up an interesting point when we're treating patients for depression, and that is to be sure to screen for bipolar disorder. It's certainly much more common than we thought. And I remember the day when I thought that I don't treat bipolar disorder. I refer those all on to the psychiatrist. Now I'm much smarter. Now you know what I say? I treat it. I just don't know that I'm treating it all the time because sometimes it sneaks through. I'm actually getting much more aggressive on treating bipolar disorder in my practice anyway because there's just not enough psychiatrists around. So by default, we end up treating it. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Dan Diamond. We are discussing restoring function in the treatment of depression. So, Dan, you're a primary care practitioner. I know you must be really busy. How do you do this in primary care? You know, as a psychiatrist, I just can't even imagine doing it in a primary care setting. So, for example, in our practice, we're big on rating scales. We have a rating scale for everything under the sun. Is that something that you find helpful? My answer to that has changed recently. If you would have asked me that five years ago, I would have said, you know, thanks a bunch. If you've got a rating scale, you can leave it on my desk, and I never would use it, just kind of toss them, because it seemed cumbersome and artificial to my patients. And recently, after looking at some of the literature and kind of pondering patient flow in my office, I thought I'd give it a try and have really found a place for using screening questionnaires initially but also using questionnaires to track my patients during their the whole longitudinal approach to their depression. And I really think it's given me a different piece of information than I had before. It's helped me to do a better job. I mean, I view it as my lab test, that it's something we can track from time to time and really give us some objective comparator to help us in their treatment. So which ones do you like? The one that I'm using the most right now is a PHQ-9. Zong has a very nice initial screening questionnaire that I I really like, but it was not specifically designed to track people longitudinally like the PHQ-9. And that really gives me a very rapid view of how the patient's doing. And it's really helpful to have that score before I even go in. So going to the exam room, I'll have my staff give the patient the PHQ-9 And then when I'm standing in the hall before I walk in, I can kind of look at where their PHQ-9 was last visit, where it is right now, which elements of the PHQ-9 they're still struggling with, and then kind of have an idea formulated in my head of where I want to go even before I walk into the exam room. So that's been very helpful. So this is something that the patient doesn't complete. The staff actually has to ask the questions. No, the patients fill it out themselves. 
they're in the file drawer, and I each examine them, and I just have my staff grab one, give it to the patient, they fill it out. How long does it take? I would say, on average, about three minutes for the patients to fill out. It's pretty quick. And how can people find that? You can find the PHQ-9 online. I believe the copyright's owned by Pfizer, but they're very generous with allowing those of us in the real world to use it in our practices. And if you just search for PHQ-9, you'll easily find multiple sites where you can get the PDF file and download it. It would be awesome if we had enough resources to be able to do HAMDs on everybody that comes through the office, but we just don't have the time or the staff that have the training to administer the HAMD. The Beck Depression Inventory is a nice tool, but you have to pay for it every time you use it. So I think the PHQ-9 is the best thing that we've got out there. Is the PHQ-9 specific for depression? PHQ-9 is specific for depression. I also give all my depressed patients either the mood disorders questionnaire or the MDQ, or the other one that I'll use is the bipolar spectrum diagnostic scale. As a primary care doc, the majority of patients that I see that have bipolar disorder actually have bipolar 2. So the bipolar spectrum diagnostic scale, or the BSDS, is a bit more sensitive for picking up people that have bipolar 2. But I have learned not to depend on my ability to ramble through all those questions in the exam room when I'm already running a bit behind. It just makes more sense to screen all those patients. The one thing that I've learned about bipolar disorder is that I have to maintain an index of suspicion. It's just not healthy for the patients if I become egotistical and think to myself, well, I've already made the diagnosis of unipolar depression and I'm sticking to it because sometimes patients will manifest bipolar disorder over time. So I've got to maintain a a sense of curiosity about the patient's diagnosis in order to avoid missing those patients with bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. So everybody at the beginning gets either an MDQ, the Mood Disorders Questionnaire, or the Bipolar Spectrum Diagnostic Scale, as well as a PHQ-9. And then I track them over time with the PHQ-9. And if anything that's suspicious sort of comes up as far as their behavior or the way that they respond to the antidepressant that I put them on, then I may rescreen them once again for bipolar disorder. So it sounds like these scales may actually save you time. Oh, they do. I really think they do, especially the PHQ-9. There's questions that I don't need to get off into tangents with on patients, and I can hone in and focus on the parts of their illness that are specifically bothering them. I would throw in my own personal opinion here. The MDQ, I have a heck of a lot of false positives with it, so I actually stopped using it, and I use the second scale that you mentioned that picks up bipolar 2 a little bit more, I think. So just a word of caution for those MDQ users out there. You know, I've had the same thing, where I'll get a a patient with a positive MDQ, and then I start going back through it with them, and they've either interpreted the questions more liberally than I would have, or it just kind of doesn't wash out when you go through and actually discuss with the patient what's going on. But the bipolar spectrum diagnostic scale does a great job. You know, people read through that scale as a paragraph first and then answer a question at the end of it, does this story fit you or how well does it fit you? And then they go back to a second time and check off all the elements in that paragraph that fit them, and you total it all up. It's a, it's a really a very good 
screening tool. In talking about the impact of depression, what can we do? You mentioned talking about with your patients their work performance as one of the parameters to measure with treatment. Any other tips in the last minute or so that we have? Obviously, we need to do a better job of recognizing depression. We're only diagnosing about 50% of what is believed to be out there. And believe it or not, only 50% of those people get treatment medically. And of those 25 of the original 100 patients, only eight of them are getting all the way to remission. So treating aggressively, treating early, following up patients on a very regular basis to make sure that our patients are getting all the way to remission and having a highly suspicious mind looking for depression in the patients that are coming in, complaining of other things other than problems with their mood. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Dan Diamond. We have been discussing restoring function in depressed patients. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.